Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. So my friend, once again, I can't, I, every, I seem like I say I'm excited every time, but I really am. I'm excited. Once again, we're going to have a fantastic guest on. Yeah. I mean, you've been, since you took over as my co-host in this, what, back in January 1st is when we started, uh, you have been talking about this particular episode and and doing this since day one. So I'm super excited. I, I mean, even for myself, I'm not going to put it too much out yet, but I, when you told me I went on Amazon, purchased, purchased, watched this movie, uh, awesome awesome story and so I'm, I'm really excited i'm telling you read the book watch the movie so without without any further delay let's just invite on jonathan hickory 20-year sergeant uh a, a law enforcement officer in virginia uh author of the book break every chain made into a movie we'll talk about that later uh, he's a resiliency instructor he's a motivational and inspirational speaker he's a father and a husband and what I like about the book, some one of my favorite lines, he's a self-described monster. There's got to be such a story behind that title. Jonathan Hickory, welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast, man. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you, Austin. Appreciate you guys and all that you do uh, for our brothers and sisters. It's just amazing work. Um, yeah, a self-described monster. How, how am I supposed to even start talking after you call me that? <laughs> hey, man, that's just a that's just a little tease for the book. The book is so good. Thank you. And there was just something that resonated. You know, having there were so many things about that book that I associated with me personally. It's, it, there's a lot of nuances of it that are part of my story, and uh, you know that that really the self-described monster, uh, really resonated with me, but, uh, you know, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's just start in on, uh, a little bit about who you are. Tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into law enforcement. And then let's just dive into, to your story. Sure. Well, thanks so much. Um, I appreciate what you said about the book and, and about the movie. And, and I'm so thankful that it's helping so many people, um, especially brothers and sisters in law enforcement, um, you know, fire dispatch and, and other, uh, first responders. Um, so I am uh, originally from Massachusetts, so uh, up in uh, New England and grew up there. Uh, I am a birthright Boston Red Sox fan, and um, I grew up in a pretty normal family. I see Austin shaking his head. I don't know if that was a good thing about the Red Sox. <laughs> no, I'm trying through and through, man. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So, um, but uh, yeah, I grew up in a pretty normal family of uh, four, uh, four total kids. Uh, so I have a, a brother and two sisters, and my parents uh, were a wonderful, are wonderful people. Um, and were they were m married for uh, several years, and uh, we had like we had I wanted for nothing as a child. I mean, it's not like I was spoiled, but my my dad made pretty good money. He was the breadwinner for our family, and like we had an in-ground pool and like in New England when it's only open for like two months a year. Like that's a big thing. Um, I just remember, you know, as a kid having a very normal childhood, riding my BMX bike with my tube socks and um, watching my Ninja Turtles and, you know, just a great, great childhood growing up. Um, so pretty normal kid, uh, American kid. And uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, we found out that my father 
uh, had terminal cancer. Um, he was involved in the development of uh, like abrasives, like grinding wheels and things like that. But he actually did the, he had some patents in his name. Like he was super smart. Um, and um, so I guess when you bake the abrasives, the, you bake the grinding wheels, that process has been known to actually cause lung cancer. And he had uh, cancer that spread throughout his body before they could catch it. And it was too far advanced. Um, so they gave him about six months to live. And I just remember my mom sitting me down and, and telling me and my, my younger sister at the time, I was 11 and my younger sister was nine. And I'm sharing with this, this with you guys because I think it's very important to realize where, where does our story begin? Uh, I want you to think about anybody who's listening right now. I want you to think about your own childhood. I want you to think about the goods, the bads, you know, not, not everything's going to be great. Not everything's going to be horrible in your childhood, but sometimes when you're exposed to really, really horrible things, it has a lot to do with how you turn out later in life and how you process things. Um, but I just remember that when I found out that my father was going to die and there was nothing that we could do about it, uh, I had such a, of course I was sad, but I was so angry. Like there was so much anger inside of me. Um, and we even went, um, my, my dad actually made it 13 months after, uh, he was diagnosed. Um, and they gave him, I think six months, like I said. So we, we had time to take the, this last vacation together, um, to Disney world. Cause where else would you go? Right. And like my father's employer paid for the whole thing. And, but it was like the worst, best, worst trip ever. Uh, because, you know, yes, it's wonderful to be in Disney World. It's wonderful to be able to, um, you know, do that and enjoy that with your family. But it's bittersweet, right? Because the whole time you just look at your father and you know that um, this is the last trip you're going to take with him. Um, so that really affected me, especially as a young, uh, you know, 11, 12-year-old boy. I remember the morning that he passed away. Um, I was uh, awakened uh, by the sound of a car backing into our driveway. I looked down from my bedroom window into the driveway and I saw a hearse backing up into our driveway, you know? So, um, you know, these are the things that I remember from my childhood and these are not good memories. Right. Um, so as I started to become like a, a young man, uh, we moved, uh, about three months after my father died, we moved from our, my home state of Massachusetts away from my school, my church, my friends, uh, my counselor that I was seeing, all these things. And we moved to Virginia because my mom had to find uh, work to support the family. Um, so we wound up in Virginia and, um, you know, my, my whole life was, I mean, you can all, I'm sure you can only imagine, right? It's, it's, uh, it was very hard. And throw on top of that, becoming a, a young teenage boy and all the hormones and uh, stuff like that. So, a lot of anger, a lot of anger, a lot of depression. Uh, not that I knew what that was at the time. When you're 13 years old, when you're 12 years old, you don't really know what about that stuff. Um, but it uh, really affected me. And uh, as I continued uh, to become a young man and into my high school years, uh, I really struggled. I really struggled with, with um, the self-esteem issues and uh, fitting in. And um, just, again, the anger was always a recurring problem. Um, so fast forward a couple of years through these rough, rough teenage years. And, and, and here's what's, what's important to recognize is that during this time when I was struggling and I felt like, uh, 
I was always drowning. I felt like my life was broken. I felt like everybody else in the world always was thriving. And I felt like I was the one that was screwed up. Always, I felt like that. Um, and I didn't really feel know if anyone else felt like that, but certainly that's the way that I felt. So this childhood trauma just kind of stayed with me and I carried it in a very heavy way. Um, but uh, as I grew up and, and, and got a little bit older, um, the, the anger and the depression continued to be a problem. It affected, you know, when I started driving, I remember that I was a really bad road rager as a, as a 16 year old punk kid. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky nobody pulled me out of the car and, and beat me up or something, you know. I'm lucky I didn't end up in juvenile detention for some of the, the behavior, you know. And so, um, you know, so then I became a cop. The end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Message over. No. Problem solved right yeah. there. So, um, no, I, I actually job hopped quite a bit uh, after graduating high school. Um, I had enrolled in a bunch of college classes and uh, the depression, you know, really uh, took over the, uh, when I got out of high school uh, and I really didn't have any any father figure to hold me accountable. So I kind of dropped out of a lot of classes and wasn't really doing too well. So I, I did a lot of job hopping. I did a lot of soul searching and uh, wound up in kind of the IT field. I was doing some computer stuff um, and then 9-11 hit. And all the dot coms and all the technology companies went, you know, crash and burn. Um, and so uh, I really felt a calling to serve uh, my country, serve my community. And that's uh, when I started um, looking into law enforcement, looking into that that calling that I felt. Um, I don't know if you guys can relate to that at all or um, the calling, but um, certainly it's something that you're you're very drawn to and you just can't explain it. I do think there's a, I, I, I have, I can identify partly with, uh, in large part to that calling piece because this is, you know, I grew up a, a farm kid and figured out real fast that wasn't going to be me. Uh, but there's a, there's a spiritual nuance to my story that's very much, uh, ingrained in the early on of how I got there. So I absolutely identify with that. And in fact, there's some uh, head scratching things that occurred that can only be explained with, uh, uh, with spiritual answers as to how I ended up, uh, getting on, uh, my organization, but yeah, I, I, that really resonates with me, but so yeah, keep, keep, keep pressing on great. Stuff. Well, I like, I like that you talked about the spiritual aspect because one of the things that I forgot to mention was that, you know, I prayed every night when I was a boy, uh, that, that God would save my dad, that God would heal him. And when my father eventually died, you know, that really, that anger was pointed a lot at God. You know, I, I believed in God as a young boy. I was raised in the church and everything. Uh, I had to memorize a whole bunch of Bible verses and things like that. But, you know, your, your understanding of a higher power at that point um, is pretty limited. And so I just felt like, uh, quite honestly, God sucked. Uh, I was super angry um, at God for taking my dad. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, back to the law enforcement um, career. So... When I had also met my wife around the same time, and you know, we uh, we actually dated and were engaged for a long time before we got married, because uh, I made uh, her, I promised her parents that I would allow her to finish school before we get married. But my wife Stacy is like, like I married up. Okay, <laughs> she's amazing. Um, she's beautiful, 
she's an amazing young lady, or uh, I say young, but she is younger than me. But I, she's an amazing woman, and she, and she is uh, just a an absolute radiant person, um, and she's so strong. Um, but I met met her, and we got married about the same time I was becoming a police officer. So like I guess Brad, for the for the first time in my life, I felt like okay, maybe my life um, is going to be okay. Like maybe I can get back to normal. Maybe my my life is all right. You know. Um, cause of, after all these years of like feeling like I was screwed up and I was broken and nothing was going right in my life, I finally had a glimpse of hope, you know, this amazing woman. And then this, this amazing new career that I was so excited about. Um, so I think it was 2003, I got hired on as a police officer and then 2004, uh, I was married about three months or two months after I completed my field training program. So, you know, kind of a wild ride, all, all happening at once. Um, and then I, as I began my, my career with the department, uh, it was a larger department, um, not like a thousand, but, but like 150 officer department. And, you know, it was surreal. You know, we get into this line of work and you can do all the research you want. You can read all the books you want. You can watch all the shows you want. But until you get into the, on the street and doing it, you know, you, no one really understands what it's like, but oh, go, uh, and there is no way to prepare, fully prepare somebody for that. What you're just describing there, there's no way to articulate. And even uh, having people ri- do ride alongs, uh, you know, they don't, that still doesn't fully ingrain them into the, the saturation of the difficulties of the job. It, it just, it really doesn't. So, yeah, I, I, completely agree they're really yeah you're absolutely right it's um there's just no other than doing it there's really no way but i think that a lot of the folks a lot of the family um you know of officers really start to be affected by by the the officer becomes you know a, a person becomes a police officer and it's not just the the officer the person that's becoming an officer their entire family is affected by this new career um you know with all the of course missed holidays missed um, sports games with kids and things like that. But, but, you know, you carry a lot of these things home with you. When something major happens um, on your shift, uh, you're going to bring it home with you. And even, even if you don't want to talk about it, it's going to come out maybe in ugly ways. Um, and so it's, it really affects the whole, the whole family. But I think that you can try to prepare. There are lots of, of resources out there to try to make it not such a surprise, but, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, you're not going to process it like in a healthy way. Um, unless you're, um, unless you're in a, in a good place already, I guess that if that makes sense, you have to be already leading this life of balance of balanced resilience, um, or else, um, it, it can turn to bad things. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but you know, as a young officer, everything was the most awesome thing ever. Like I wanted to stop every car that moved. I wanted to arrest everybody. You know, I wanted to arrest my mom. Not really, but like, <laughs> like I, I got the, um, the DUI award from like the mothers against drunk, drunk driving. I got that like three years in a row, you know, my first three years. And I mean, I was, uh, you know, really out there trying to, trying to do all sorts of stuff. Um, 
But, you know, after a couple of years, the, the novelty of this job, and I think that's why you see so many cops, they'll start out and then in two or three years, they leave. Um, because after a couple of years, the newness of the job wears off and you're like, the heaviness starts to set in and you now you're in the grind. Yes, exactly. And you, you start to feel like all this stuff is starting to stack up, you know, in this, in this backpack on your back, you know, full of like super heavy rocks. Um, and you know, it starts to become a heavy burden to bear. And so that is something I started to feel pretty quickly. Um, probably within the first two, two years, I started to feel that. Um, started to really not understand like how to cope with it. Um, I knew that I, you know, there is definitely a stigma and it's still alive and well today, uh, that you're not supposed to talk about these things if you're struggling. I know that, um, even now, like the, we now know that the number one cause of death every year, uh, for police officers is not line of duty deaths, it's suicide. Um, same is true for firefighters. Same is true for, you know, all first responders is that we die more on, on our own hand than line of duty death. Um, because we don't want to talk to anybody else about it. We, if we're struggling and that's where I was, I started to struggle and I started to have the dream. Um, have you ever had the dream, Brad? Oh yeah. So what's your, you're talking about the, 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 the bad video loop? Uh, no, this one is uh, the the gunfight dream where your gun doesn't work. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever had that one? Yep. Mine's a driving. Mine's driving. The The car's not uh, working the way it's uh, supposed to. It's not responding. I want to hear. So I, I want to hear about that dream. Yeah, so it's, rela- it's direct, directly, I think, directly related to a near... Uh, near auto accident of responding to another pursuit uh, and where I nearly lost control of my car. And from that dream came this car driving dream where the car, the car's not responding correctly, you know? So yeah. Is that, is that similar to what you're talking about? So it's similar in that, and we're going to break it down in a second here. Okay. So my dream that I, I don't thank God, I don't have it anymore very rarely, but, um, it really, you know, once I started going to counseling and, and really coping with stuff in healthy ways, the dream went away. So I'll say that. But for years, I had this dream, and most police officers will have this dream. Uh, and it's a, a dream where you're in a gunfight. Uh, it, it could be multiple suspects. It could be one suspect. But the, the thing that reigns true every time is that you're trying to uh, send rounds at this suspect. And no matter how hard I pull the trigger, the gun will not go off. The, the, it's not working. That's right. Um, there's different variations of it. Like I've heard variations of um, syrup bullets where they're oozing out of the gun or um, the bullets will drop on the ground right in front of you at your feet um, and not, you know, going where they should. And so if you break those two dreams down, your dream with the driving and the car is not responding, my dream or with uh, the gunfight and uh, your gun doesn't work no matter how hard you pull the trigger. The same, the the thing that's the same is that it's something that we need to be in control of. We want to be in control of, we have to be in control of, but we're not in control of it. And it's a, it's like a panic, a fear factor. 
um, the inside of our inside of us that uh, it's like our worst fear is that we're not in control because as uh, in this profession as a first responder you are to control the situation the scene the you know whatever you're responding to and when you feel like you can't control everything because you can't you know but we want to when you feel like you can't you think you can you, yeah we, you think you can right but yep and and so it's an those dreams are um anxiety dreams they're anxiety and control dreams um that was how it was explained to me from a, my police psychologist and so i think that it's important to know that if you're having that dream it's pretty normal to have it um and it might be helpful to go to talk to a, a, a psychologist or a counselor um, about it because you're trying to hang on to something that um, you really you we can't hang on to um, and when we can learn to start to let some of that stuff go that's when we can start to like relax a little bit and heal and not be such a Richard all the time as a lot of us can be um, that's where uh, for me faith comes in now um, because uh, I, I feel like um, belief in a higher power belief in god believe you know belief in a creator it helps you to believe that ultimate control is above your pay grade and you don't have to worry about everything that happens yeah you can still shine your shoes you can still target practice at the range you can still be ready right you can still do driver training but like ultimate control is not going to be your responsibility anymore so that that helps me a lot um we got a little bit out of order there but <laughs> no 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 that's good i we we could chase a number of those rabbits uh yeah I, I, which i think is is uh, yes i i agree i'm just the control piece yes i echo that so greatly so this is is a, a fascinating piece of our culture specific to uh, most first responder disciplines in their own uh, individualistic way but for law enforcement you know we're we're bringing calm to chaos. So your our jobs are no matter what we've got to calm that situation down. And in order to do that, we, you know, you you take on this uh, kind of superhero cape of I'm here to control everything and baseline that out. And it and it starts to permeate its way into all facets of your life. It just uh, starts to ooze into uh, you know all areas of. I have to control this and I have to control that. And, uh, yeah. And, and I could not agree with you more that if, if you're there in those dreams, it's time to start having conversations with somebody. Yeah. I mean, just as I love that you said that talking about it starts to ooze into different parts of your life because, um, to be, I think that, I mean, how many, how many people that are listening right now can relate to like your car has to be sparkling clean. Uh, there's, uh, somebody just is eating French fries in the back seat, and you're like, uh, <laughs> this yep. is a problem. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I still won't let everything's my, in order. Like, like my kids can eat in the car certain things, right? <laughs> but like that, um, big old, you know, grumbly, crumbly Nutrigrain bar, it ain't happening, kid. No, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> So, it's not gonna happen so even today you know i admit very readily that i, I i'll always be broken but i'm a, a lot more healed than i used to be um <laughs> I, you know i think we're all broken 
uh, we're all, but you can, you can live your life one day at a time uh, in a resilient manner that you can survive, survive this job and survive this life. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was starting to struggle early on in my career. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did at one point go to another officer. Um, so I, about four years into my career, I was able to join our traffic unit. You know, I was Mr. Like, you know, I said, I got all the DUI stops and everything. So I was able to go over to our traffic unit. It's a small unit. It's only like five people, six people. And um, so it was a, good, a big honor to be selected for that. Uh, but part of that with the department that I work for is, uh, you know, and this is fairly common, uh, is you're not only a ticket writer uh, or a, and a motor guy and, or a motor officer or whatever, but you're also a fatal crash reconstruction officer. So, you know, you go to the special training for that and any time it's a really bad crash with somebody getting maimed or killed, um, you're, you're responding to that. So, um, you know, I was already kind of struggling when I got into that unit and then, um, and now it was like every fatality that happened, um, I was, I was there for that. So I think that just made things worse for me because I wasn't, facing my stuff. I wasn't facing, um, the trauma. Um, and now like I had a nice little stack going on. So I had the death of my father, you know, which, which wrecked me. And, um, that, I mean, I, cause I love my dad so much. He was such a, such an amazing person. He cared so much about our family. I cared so much for our ch uh, the children, you know, loved my mom so much, like never saw them fight. Um, yeah, I mean, he beat my butt sometimes, but like, you know, that's a loving father. So um, I was still pretty wrecked from that. And uh, even though I was older, uh, you know, time does not heal that wound if you're not going to face it. Uh, it's like, you know, if you get shot by, by an RPG and you just put a, um, you know, like just put some dirt on it and cover it up with a Band-Aid, it's not going to go. A little Band-Aid on it, that's it. <laughs> yeah, rub yeah. some dirt in it. Yeah. <laughs> not going to fix it, right? You know, so... Um, you know, as I continued in my police career, all these, uh, other traumas that I was exposed to just started stacking on top of that. And, um, so alcohol became my thing, like so many other of us, you know, alcohol is so accepted in our, in our culture. Um, and I never had, here's the crazy thing, you know, I never had a substance abuse problem before, um, before I became a police officer. Um, you know, I was getting along okay without that. And so it just show, goes to show you that like the new trauma, um, I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't cope with it on my own. And so, um, you know, after I joined the traffic unit and, and uh, started doing all these deaths, you know, fresh kills, as I call them, death scenes, um, and you're a liaison to the family um, and, you know, getting to know this person personally uh, and, you know, there's children that are killed and all this horrible things. Um, I went to this other officer and I was like, Hey, like I'm really struggling. Like I'm having nightmares about this stuff and I'm seeing these images in my head and like, it's, it's bothering me. Like it took a lot of courage for me to go to this guy and say that the senior officer. And I just remember his response where he laughed, he laughed and he said, Oh, you gotta just let that, you know, stuff. He, he didn't say stuff roll off your back like water off of a duck or something. And I'm like, okay, well now I feel stupid. You know, the, here's this guy with like double my experience. I really look up to him. I really respect him. And I still do respect the guy, but 
like he uh, in that moment made me feel ashamed uh, for bringing it up, uh, for talking about it. Um, and uh, like it was like this forbidden thing that I had done. Uh, so, you know, I, I felt ashamed of my badge. I felt ashamed of, you know, of, of admitting it. I felt like I was suddenly weak and broken again. And now I'm thinking, okay, it's true. I'm like, I'm the only one. Clearly, I'm the only one that's struggling um, in this, you know, the, everybody else is fine. I'm just not cut out for this. Um, but, you know, one of the things, if I can jump in here, you know, one of the things I think is is pretty common is, is uh, and, and I'd love to have your take on this, uh, because what, what really is resonating with me in this conversation is the traffic side because being a trooper uh it, dozens and dozens and dozens of fatal crashes that i was involved in and participated in and uh when, when they talk about that some people get the idea that all those bother you the the same and what i found my experience was not all of them really stick but there are certain ones that stand out that are enormously impactful and they're not they're not the dozens they're more uh you know like single digit of uh you know, the, that these one, two, three, four, five individual crashes uh, of, you know, a family crash or a baby crash or a teenager that lost, you know, those, those things that really stick and not all of these in your backpack really are so haunting, but man, the ones that are, uh, you know, when you go have a conversation with somebody, they, it doesn't haunt them. So they say that shouldn't have bothered you. It doesn't bother me. And that's where that education piece, I'm sure that's where you're going with this, but, but this education piece of understanding, okay, it may bother me. It still bothers me, even though it doesn't bother you. So is that fair? Is that yeah, no, it's, it's so, it's so true. That's such a, like, that's incredible because I think that the ones that my theory on it is that the ones that affect us the most are the ones that we have a personal connection to. So if, if you have small children, and now you're working a crash with small children, you know, or, um, you know, for me, it was uh, one of the ones that really disturbed me was uh, work on the crash of a guy that, you know, I was friends with in high school. And, and I wasn't, I would never like pretend that I was like chums, best buds with the guy, you know, but we'd hung out some. And I think that when there's a soul connection with someone, you know, you know, that person, it makes it more difficult. I think if you can relate to it because it's a small child, you know, or whatever it is that, that um, you're having uh, struggling with, maybe you can't explain it. Like maybe there's just like this, you know, if you've seen the movie, uh, the Break Every Chain movie, there's a crash scene um, with a, uh, a teenage girl and uh, they show the, the fingernails, uh, the pink fingernails or green fingernails or whatever they were. And that was supposed to be something that like resonated as a haunting image you know, because it's like this innocent young life taken. And that was based on a true crash that, you know, um, that happened. But like, it's all, it's like the hopelessness, you know, like a young life taken uh, before its time, you know, a 16 year old girl and, um, you know, just so full of life, so full of promise, endless possibilities. And uh, in the, the life has been robbed from them. And so now you're filled with hopelessness because all you can focus on is like, you know, nobody wins in this situation. Even if you get to charge somebody else with uh, manslaughter or reckless driving or whatever, you know, like nobody wins. And 
the family will forever mourn the death of their daughter, you know? And so I think that's what really got to me more than anything was the, the human side of it, you know, is the, the loss of, of people, the loss of children, the loss of um, loved family members, you know? You know, and I think, I think you just hit on something that I think it's very important to point out, which is actually that's what happens is we humanize that entire situation and we're, uh, we're, programmed to not do that they do that in our training they do that in our academies they do that in our field training uh whereas it's uh you're taught and reprogrammed brainwashed if you will to uh, disconnect and disassociate with that human side because it's all part of that control you were talking about early of controlling the situation bringing calm to chaos and and uh, I, I love where you're going with this because this is this is really important this is an important point to say uh, when you actually humanize the call, your heart starts to become very vulnerable to that, and uh, that that has that ekes its way in. To that's where you know we talk about getting stuck. That's where some of those calls get stuck. You know, so yeah, I love this. Yeah, and that's that's one side of it, and then the other side of it is um, like when a if it was a shooting or something like that, um, and you something goes the way you didn't want it to. So now you're having trouble processing that in your brain and it's stuck and it, you know, you keep trying to process it and it's like, well, that didn't go the way it was supposed to. That didn't, you know, that didn't go way it was supposed to. So that's where like EMDR uh, can help um, to process that and kind of unstick it. Um, but humanizing a call, you know, like that's not a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing to have emotions. Um, and certainly if we did that with every single call, and you're like, oh, like this domestic I went to, the guy punched his girlfriend in the eye and it's so horrible. Like we would never be able to survive this job. You have to, right. you have to put on your game face and, and go to work. But um, sometimes you just can't, you, you, you know, you're affected by it. Um, you know, I uh, recall a, uh, a 11 year old, um, 11 or 12 year old young man who, who hung himself and uh, the mother found him, and it's like, what do you say that to that mother? How do? You, what do you? What do you? Where's the training in the academy for that? <laughs> you, know, like, you can't. Uh, there is no. That's what I'm saying. People may go on a ride along or whatever, but until you have to to face these kinds of scenes, it's just, you know, I think where we uh, where we can uh, do well is come together. Like, you know, call out the chaplain. You know, get your super to get the supervisor on the scene, like get other people there. Don't feel like you can you have to fight it alone, you know, and, and I'm looking at your no one fights alone, you know, in the background, you know, that's a good time to remind people that, like, you know, that you don't have to go this alone. And, and I think that so many people uh, as first responders, they, we feel like we have to fight this battle uh, on our own. And uh, it, we're, we're not meant to do that. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, so I was going to get back to my career. Uh, so I started picking up alcohol as a way to cope because I wasn't dealing with my trauma. And alcohol, like, I liked it a lot. Um, it, it became this thing that allowed me to escape reality. It allowed me to escape the trauma of losing my father, the, the trauma of all the um, the the death and dysfunction and abuse that I was seeing on the job. And so I started to abuse it and I started to, um, 
get to the point where uh, I became an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic. And I always thought that I was different, that I really wasn't an alcoholic because I was like, well, you know, I can still get to work. Uh, I'll never drive drunk. And, um, you know, yeah, I get this headache all the time, but like I can function. So if you're, you know, I would go on the internet and search like how many drinks a day before you're considered an alcoholic. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> if you do that, like, you know, that, that could maybe be your a clue. Sign. Yeah. Maybe a sign. It, yeah. Nine. Okay. <laughs> um, but also like I was really good at hiding it and, um, you know, I think cops are great actors. Uh, uh, first responders are good at, at, at put, putting on that game face and, and hiding things. And so, you know, my, my wife might see a, a couple of beers in the trash can uh, or whatever, but she would, I'd hide the, the fifth of liquor. I'd hide the, the wine bottle that I, the entire bottle of wine that I drank on top of the two beers, you know, um, and all I was doing was trying to get drunk every night. Um, it got so bad that if I didn't drink, I'd have withdrawal symptoms. I could feel things crawling on me that weren't there, obviously. And um, so I, I tried to kick it when my, uh, when my first daughter was born, um, tried to kick the habit. Uh, I wanted to be a good dad and, you know, started like running five K's and whatever I could to do something else to cope with it, with the stress and the trauma and, um, went right back to it. Um, cause now I have the stress of being a parent, <laughs> but, um, no excuse, but you know, I just couldn't shake it. So, uh, the years started to go by and this was my life. I was an alcoholic for years, like um, probably almost 10 years and um, nobody knew. It was my horrible, dirty secret. Uh, and over these years, I just became a more bitter, bitter, cynical jerk. Um, and this is where the monster came in. Um, just an absolute jerk. Um my wife and I, in 2013, we became pregnant with our second child, but our marriage was awful. It, 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 was, it was my fault. I was a, a horrible husband, a horrible father, um, and just an angry, cynical, bitter, um, short-tempered prick. Um, but I was a great cop. Like, I was winning all my cases and, you know, like, um, just doing awesome in my career. It's like the only thing I was good at. And uh, so I, I somehow justified, you know, everything else. When we, uh, when we were ch pregnant with the second child, um, we started having some complications and my wife uh, lost the child five months into the pregnancy. Um, we did not know it at the time, uh, but uh, it turned out it was, uh, it was a boy. And so it was like, when that happened, um, I just remember I was already in such a dark place and, you know, not facing anything in healthy ways and an alcoholic and, um, that when this death happened of my firstborn son, um, that I, I just, I, I can't explain it. Like the, the, the darkest heaviness fell over me. Um, and I remember just thinking like, if there isn't even is a God, how could he take my dad from me and my son from me? Like, if God exists, he's awful. Um, and so I started just doing whatever I wanted. Uh, I, uh, I didn't face the loss of the child. 
Um, I figured, well, I'm tough. I'm a cop, so you know, I can uh, fix anything, including myself, because clearly I'm already doing so good at that already. And so, <laughs> so I uh, refused to go get any help. Refused to go talk to anybody. My wife started going to church at that point because um, we hadn't been. I refused to do that. I was like, hell no, I'm not going to church because um, you know if there is a God, he's you know I'm not going to church. Um, There's a scoreboard at this point, right? Like yes, there there really is. I I can I feel that a lot with my own you know personal journey is as as life goes on and things start to become more and more difficult or or terrible things happen, the scoreboard to, uh, against God becomes a tough one to overcome. That's exactly where where I was, and um, for the first time in my life, as a person that always believed in God, I'm not saying I had this awesome. Like I was a check the box Christian, you know, like what religion, religion are you? Uh, that one, that's about it. That was my faith. Um, so Christmas I believe that there were yep. Christmas, was that? Christmas and Easter, right? Uh, yeah. If he, if God was lucky, he'd get me on Christmas and Easter. Um, <laughs> more likely homecoming homecoming was, uh, like this church, uh, gathering where they always had food. So I'd usually be at those right on, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's, you know, it's silly, but like, you know, that's what my relationship with God was. And so I was just like, for the first time in my life, when, when after the loss of this child, I was like, okay, um, I don't know if I, if God exists and, and like to always have believed before that and now start thinking maybe God doesn't exist. Like that's a kind of a sick feeling that I was having. Um, Cause it's like, what if it's not true? And so I was really having a crisis of faith. I was having a lot of things going on. And then I started to like, this is what happens when you don't get help, by the way, with trauma. Um, your brain processes it the way it, it wants to, which isn't always the right way. And so I started to uh, associate the death of the child with my wife. And so I couldn't look at my wife. I couldn't talk to my wife. I couldn't be in the same room as my wife and that obviously that is so unfair to her that's so twisted and wrong and like the hell was wrong with me but i didn't know what was wrong with me and again i i tried to like ask another cop for advice about this i'm like yeah i'm really struggling with this like i like our yeah and his advice i won't even say it it was so bad um you got to go to the right people you got to go to to professionals um, you got to go to people that know how to help you. Like a peer supporter might be able to listen, but they're not going to be able to maybe help you heal from the loss of a child, you know? Um, and so I think it's good to, to vent, but uh, some things you really need to go get professional help. Uh, but I wouldn't. So, you know, I just did my, I kept doing my own thing and that started to lead to self-destruction. And so as I started to self-destruct and I didn't care if I lived or died, I didn't care what happened to me. And I'm just living for myself at this point because it made me feel better. Um, that's when affairs started like infidelity. That's when um, reckless behavior on the job started. Um, probably my complaints went up, but also like going to calls that I probably shouldn't have by myself, uh, going to help with calls, uh, when I'm not even on duty um, without a vest on, you know, things like that. So just reckless behavior. 
Um, and the heaviness continued. The alcoholism got worse, if that was even possible. Um, I remember in 2014, uh, my wife uh, planned this amazing trip to Disney World. And I mean, she's not a sugar mama or anything. She's, she was a teacher in public school at the time. But she saved, at the time, it was over $5,000 for us to go to, to Disney World for a week. My daughter was five years old. And I'm like, well, you know, I had taken off the time for, to go. Uh, and this was about 16, 17 months after the loss of this child. So I'm in this downward spiral. Um, and I told my wife that I, I couldn't go. And she's like, what? Like, you took the time off. What are you she's like, I, I'm like, oh, you know. Uh, you know, I got all this stuff to do at work and I just really can't go. So I'm, I'm standing back and I'm ready to let my wife and my five-year-old daughter drive to Disney World, 12-hour drive, by themselves and go see Ariel and Cinderella and all them because I didn't want to go because I thought that I couldn't get a, I couldn't support my alcohol habit uh, for that week, that I wouldn't be able to drink in the hotel room or Mickey wouldn't have a bar open or, or whatever. So I did end up going, um, but uh, I, end, I solved the problem by going and buying a bunch of liquor bottles. My suitcase would clank when you set it down and um, I would drink in the hotel room, you know, after everybody else was asleep. So I spent the whole Disney vacation hungover, miserable and cursing Mickey Mouse. Um, but uh, I, I mean, my five-year-old had a good time. Like she was oblivious to my, but that's where the monster part comes in. That was the worst I'd ever been. You know, I'm in the middle of, a, of, of affairs. Um, I'm throwing my wife away, throwing my, my marriage away um, and treating my family like crap. Um, and that was when my wife told me, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I hate you. She, you know, for the first time. Um, and, and, like that was my reality check a little bit. I kind of needed to hear it. That was what started to make me think. Um, but then I got back from Disney World, and um, about uh, maybe I think it was like within the, a week of getting back. I, I can't remember, but um, I was marching to Internal Affairs for the first time in my life. Have you guys ever been in IA? Oh yeah. <laughs> he said, "Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah." <laughs> yeah. Well, I hadn't, and um, I'm not saying I'm perfect, okay, but like I've been maybe for one little thing or here or there, but to to have to be walked in there by my supervisor and a uh, a, a voice recorder plopped down in front of me, and um, they said, you know, you're being investigated for conduct unbecoming of an officer. You need to turn in your uh, department issued laptop and your cell phone. You need to give us the password, the lock codes. Um, and you're not to discuss this with anyone um, in the department. <laughs> of course, what did I hear? Anyone. So, um, you know, I certainly couldn't talk about it with my wife because this conduct on becoming of an officer had to do with the infidelity. I mean, you can't be doing that as a married man, as a police officer. It's, uh, it's unbecoming. Um, and so it, my sins had caught up with me, and they said, you can go home early um, without your laptop or your cell phone. But you can go home early. And uh, so I went home and I'm like, you know, looking up the policy and the discipline and, you know, what, how bad is this? And it goes all the way to termination. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, oh, my gosh. Like, so I get home and I'm um, 
just lay it like I'm laying on the bed. My the house is quiet, the house is empty, no one's home. My wife's at work, my daughter's in school, and there's just this eerie silence. And I'm battling for my soul. You know, I'm thinking, you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose your job. It's a it's your identity, it's all you have. You're gonna lose your wife, she's gonna find out what you did, and um, she's gonna leave you. Um, and she has every right to leave you. Uh, and then your, your daughter's going with her. So, you know, you're going to lose everything in this moment. Um, I hear this voice saying, just end your life. Just end it. It's over. Just, you know, um, and you know, I got this, like, I wanted to throw up. I I felt so sick, but I'm like, yeah, this is what I have to do. Um, but in that same moment, uh, I saw this, uh, like I saw flames. I saw this vision of fire and I believe at that moment that I, I, I felt like, Oh, that's hell. You know, like that's where I'm going. Uh, pump the brakes. Like it scared me. And so that's like the only reason that I didn't keep down that road, uh, because, uh, it scared me enough to say like, well, uh, if you do this, there's definitely no second chance. And, um, and, you know, you might be going somewhere you don't want to go. And, um, so that's when I surrendered my life. I said, God, like, uh, you, you suck, but God, <laughs> I have not done the greatest with my life. I mean, clearly I have not done well. And so I'm done. I'm done. I, I quit. I I'm done with my life. So instead of just throwing it away, I'm going to let you have it and you, and I'm going to surrender to you. And so that's kind of where, where my faith journey began. Um, but I also went to go get help and I didn't like, I didn't actually make that conscious decision either. I went to my commanding Lieutenant a few days later and I said, what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose everything. And he pulled me into his office and he said, are you hurting? And I'm like, I am not going to answer that question. Are you crazy? <laughs> That's a setup right there. Are you hurting? Hmm. So I just kind of looked at him with panic in my eyes. And he said, hang on just a second. So he's, the door's closed. And he gets our department psychologist on the phone. And, he's, and like the guy answered the phone, which is weird because he's usually always busy. But... Um, that's their kind of relationship that, uh, they had with each other. And so he says, make an appointment with this guy. This is, you know, Dr. Greenberg, this is Jonathan. Jonathan is going to come see you, you know, so make an appointment. You know, he says, yeah, call my office. Uh, here's the number, you know, I can see you later this week, whatever. And so that's like how I started going to get professional help. Um, and then later my wife and I went to see a a faith-based marriage counselor um, and she actually really dove into all the trauma all the way back to my dad, losing my dad, like that I was still carrying at the age of 35 um, and didn't realize like how much it was screwing me up. And after I had told this uh, this counselor all the crap in my life, all the stuff, you know, the loss of the child, the loss of my dad, you know, all this police trauma, she looks at me, she stops taking notes for 500 pages and she says, she looks up at me and she says, wow, I'm surprised you're doing as well as you are. And I'm like, wait, what? There's worse? Like people do worse than me? How? Like, so 
that that kind of helped me a little bit to feel better. But yeah, that was the beginning of my healing journey. And um, just I tell you, like getting help was the was the hardest thing to do. But once I just like anything else, once you take those first few steps, and you start doing the work, you start seeing the results like it. Uh, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. And now here I am eight years later, um, eight years sober. Um, and you know, I have my wife and I have restored our marriage. She forgave me. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve her grace, but she made the decision to forgive. And I turned from my old ways, you know, um, I kicked alcohol uh, and we not only have we restored our marriage, but it's stronger now. And we have uh, two had two more children since then. Uh, I have a six-year-old son, uh, Zachariah, and a, uh, our youngest daughter, Hope, just turned three. Um, so we have three kids, and they're awesome kids. They're amazing kids. Um, and like, I just I'm like God, I. Uh, I have a relationship with God now that, that, you know, I, I trust in him, but like, it's a restoration story. It's a miracle, but it's because I got help. I, I actually pulled your, uh, I pulled some of your, uh, photos up because you and I are connected on Instagram. I was pulling up and your family just has, you can tell when people have happy smiles and your family is just glowing and it is a, it is a, true reflection of all that hard work that you did, you know, eight years ago and how, what a blessing it is. You see the shining smile on your face, you know, is just absolutely, uh, it, it's mesmerizing because it's such a beautiful family. So let's close the door here on a couple of things, right? So, uh, for the listeners that are oh, yeah. curious about the <laughs> oh, yeah, family, that, <laughs> maybe, uh, so, 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 so let's close a couple of doors here. Right. So, so you're still on the yeah. job. Clearly that, I mean, we don't have to go into details that, that, uh, you know, walk us a little bit through some, you know, closing. A couple Absolutely. I'm sorry. I, I skipped a few things. No, that no, that's okay. So no, it took two months to get through that investigation. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I lost 15 pounds from the stress. And I'm, I'm like, not like a fat guy, uh, but I lost a ton of weight and um, it, I was so worried that I was going to lose my job. But so I was disciplined very heavily because I told the truth. Okay. So here's a pro tip. If you get in trouble, you need to be honest. And because it, 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 you cannot survive lies in this career. So tell the truth. Uh, and, and some of these things can be survivable. Um, it, it doesn't mean that the road ahead is going to be easy for you, but, um, you know, but power through and stay and keep your integrity. Um, and so, uh, I was able to keep my job. I was heavily disciplined. Um, one of the disciplines was I was removed from my position as a traffic, uh, officer, motor officer, reconstruction guy and, uh, midnight patrol immediately. Um, and I, uh, side note, I, uh, I figured I didn't have to tell my wife about this, <laughs> about why I went to suddenly went to midnight. I fig figured I wouldn't tell her because if she knew that it was because I was being investigated for infidelity, um, she'd probably like kill me while I slept. So um, instead, I made up a sort of halfway true story about in a pursuit I had been written up for and that it was related to that. 
And it was true. I had been written up for a bad pursuit, but, um, but it wasn't for that. So, um, you know, she was like, Oh my gosh, like, how can they do this to you? Because like, you're, you know, you work so hard and I'm like, uh, let, maybe we should just not even question it. It'll be fine. Just yeah, drop just, it. Yeah, that's right. Drop it. Just, I'm okay with it. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, What's for dinner? <laughs> it's, listen, it's so funny. Cause in the movie, um, you know, the, we we actually when uh, we watched the movie, uh, the director and the lead actor and I we watched the movie together a few times, and uh, like that scene, you know, where he's like, "Ah, eh, it'll be fine," and he cracks open a Pepsi and walks out of the room, you know, <laughs> just shh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nothing exactly. to say here. It'll be fine. So about so after that, I'm working midnight shift for two months and I'm like, oh my gosh, like she's going to find out. I'm such an idiot. Everybody knows I'm going to find, she's going to find out. And God's telling me like, you need to tell her, like you tell her, you idiot, you need to tell her. Um, and I'm like, no God, like <laughs> you can save me from a lot of things, but not her wrath. Um, and so he took care of it for me and she found out anyway. And then we went into marriage crisis. Um, and like, you can read about all that in the book. Um, break every chain but it's um it was hell and it was all i know i did it to myself but um she did not have to forgive me but i think that when we started going to counseling together um that she started to really see uh how screwed up i was um and she saw my brokenness and she saw that i was willing to change and uh work on myself and that gave her a little bit of hope uh, I won't speak 100% for her. She actually wrote an epilogue uh, in the newest copy of the, the, the book, which looks like the movie art. Um, she wrote the epilogue. My wife did. Um, so it's in the back of the book. I don't know that I held mine up while we were – I did before we went on air, but that's the that's the old yeah. version right there. I've had mine. I've had mine. So I, I actually designed the original cover. Um, I Yeah, a this professional one? made it look better. But, like, that car is my police car. Can you, that is that's a pretty cool book yeah thank you i appreciate it i actually uh you know this is amazing looking but i'm, I'm proud of the old design too um but the new version in brad i can email you the epilogue if you'd like to read it but the new version of the book has an epilogue that that my wife wrote because a lot of women want to know i'd love to see it yeah they want to know love to see her it. side yeah. of the story as well so um but yeah so we had a hard journey in front of us um, and it's been hard. I mean, it really has. We, we've had to fight through a lot of things. But uh, what really brought us together was, uh, was the, the, the counseling. You know, we went through about five months, double sessions every week of, of counseling with a faith-based counselor. And um, I really thought that was going to be all about the marriage, but it turned out to be just all my stuff, all the stuff that um, I had been sure. stuffing for so long. Well, I want to close uh, close another door here, and that actually may open up actually may open up another door before we kind of go into the, to talking a little bit about the movie, the spiritual side. I, I, let's 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 dive a little bit deeper into to uh, because this is very much a faith based book. Um, what you know, let's let's where because where we left it was the scorekeeping piece when Austin was talking about scorekeeping and and uh, you know your your you're, I would like to explore that a little bit more because I don't think we dove into that quite as much as what, what you do in the book and the movie. So after basically questioning, starting to question whether God even existed, 
after the loss of my child, my my son, which we named Christian, by the way. And Christian came from a dream that my wife had right after the loss and before we knew it was a boy or a girl. Um, uh, God, uh, Stacy had a dream that it was a boy and that God told her to name the boy Christian. And so I just think it's interesting because I didn't really know what that would mean later. Um, but uh, that's what she, t that's what Stacy told me, you know, so, um, so when I, uh, you know, found out that I was going to, was in trouble and being investigated and I thought, it was, you know, it was suicidal and um, almost took my life. That was my moment that I was like, I, God is the only one that can help me at this point. Like no one else can help me because like I have screwed my life up so bad. And so I, uh, I took a position of surrender, like, okay, God, like I'm done. I give up. I surrender. I'm done living for me. I'm going to start living for you. And so I went, I started going to church with my wife and she, like I, she came home uh, and I told her that, that I wanted to go to church with her. And she looked at me like, who the heck are you? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Um, and I think that a lot of people at first thought that, well, he's just going to church so that like, you know, to try to like show people that he's somebody that he's not, you know, to try to act, you know, a lot of people do that. They'll, will do that. They'll, they'll start going to church for a little while and they're like, Oh, you know, if it gets me out of trouble, then I'll go to church for a little while and, you know, put on the Christian hat. And then, um, you know, I'll just go back to being my old self. Um, and it, you can't do that. Like I had to fully surrender my heart. And, um, you know, that last piece of my heart that I was not willing to surrender was the alcohol. Like even after, um, I started, uh, even after I, I was disciplined and, and found out I wasn't going to lose my job. Like I, I was trying to cut back on the drinking, like trying to read my Bible and do all the things you're supposed to do. And man, I could not kill the drinking. Um, and so, uh, when Stacy uh, found out about the infidelity, uh, I remember uh, we had like this intervention thing at my mom's house and it, I was laying on, I was like on the floor weeping. It was awful. Um, I felt so ashamed for all the things I had done to her. Um, that night, like I, she did not kick me out of the house uh, because we had a five-year-old daughter that she didn't want asking questions, but I found myself on the couch. Uh, which I totally deserved. Like, I'm grateful I wasn't even in the house. Um, you know, she had every right to leave me at that point. She had every right to divorce me. But um, that night I was sitting on the couch and, and you know, I'm, I could hear her. I, I've got a beer in my hand and I'm, I'm drinking as usual. And I can hear my wife weeping. Like, I can hear her crying. I can hear her weeping across the house. I just felt like so, like the biggest monster, the biggest piece of garbage, the biggest piece of trash the world has ever known. Uh, and I'm like looking at this bottle, like this is it. This is such a huge part of it is the drinking. And so, um, at that moment, uh, I heard a voice and it said, change your ways and stop drinking or I will take everything from you. And I'm like goosebumps. Holy crap. God just talked to me. Um, 
okay, God, I heard you. Uh, I can't do this alone. Please, God, take this from me. And so I prayed that. Um, and I put the bottle down, and I never touched a drop again since that moment, you know, eight years ago. Um, and here's the crazy part is that, uh, like, yes, the next day, I didn't sleep well that night because of, like, what had happened that day. But I didn't have withdrawals after that. Um, I, I told my wife about my secret alcoholism, and she was already super pissed, super angry at me, of course. But instead of, like, you know, um, you know, like running over me with the family car, she became my accountability partner, and she helped me get rid of any alcohol that was still in the house. She stopped bringing any bottles of wine home. She talked to family members that that would drink beer and stuff, told them not to drink around me, that I was trying to, you know, cut back or whatever. Um, and so she helped me to stop drinking. Um, and like, even after that, uh, a few months later, after I kicked alcohol, um, I, well, I, so here's a pro tip. If you haven't want to kick alcohol, uh, I actually would sit on the couch and I'm like, I need something in my hand. Like I need something that goes. Psh. So I started drinking um, Perrier which don't laugh at me because it says is Perrier, but like you can, I don't care what you, you can use seltzer water. But um, when I opened that bottle and went, you know, and I also continued to like use um, dip, you know, so I continued to use smokeless tobacco. Um, but a, a few months um, after I quit drinking, I'm like, this, I don't need this anymore. Like I, it's, it's gross. And so I uh, quit dipping after 12 years of dipping. I quit that too. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's been just so amazing that like God has restored everything because yes, um, I was at the point where I doubted if he even existed, but I certainly wasn't doing anything that, you know, I was not living, I had zero relationship with God. Um, and I wasn't doing anything, um, that honored him, uh, or represented, uh, him well. And so I think that, Honestly, I think he was trying to get my attention with some of this stuff. Well, let's uh, let's dive into the uh, let's dive into the movie a little bit. So, so uh, or, or maybe even better yet, the book. What what led you to uh, even uh, sit back and say, you know what, I've got a story for the, I've got a story for the books and and hopefully the silver screen. Where where did that idea come from? Well, I never set out um, hoping that it would be a movie. I, I think I. I had no idea what God was going to do with it. Um, so uh, well, part of my healing journey has been uh, group therapy. And so I, I used to go to this men's group for about six years. I went to this men's Bible study and it, uh, and I still go to men's Bible studies now, but um, this particular guy in, in, in the group, they had like prayed me through the pregnancy with my son, Zachariah. So when we became pregnant with Zachariah, we were terrified that we were going to lose another child. You know, like that, you know, you've been through something traumatic. You're afraid it's going to happen again. And so when his pregnancy had no issues and he was born healthy, I remember we were kind of rejoicing and celebrating uh, that uh, and all that God had done to restore my marriage and all the progress. And there was this one guy in our uh, group, uh, Cornell Smith, and he says to me after group, he's like, brother, I feel like you're going to write a book or something. I'm like, what? you smoking crack like <laughs> you know i'm a cop right like i don't want to write a report if i can if i can help it like i'm not writing anything um 
but that was when it was laid on my heart in that moment. And shortly thereafter, I was, God started surrounding me with people who were writing books or had written books. I'm like, okay, I get it. Okay. So I started to write, um, I did all my own research on how to write a book and laid out an outline, uh, with chapters and, um, you know, just started to write one chapter at a time. Uh, and my mom helped me to, uh, do some of the editing. Like I'd send her a chapter and she'd, uh, she'd print it out and she'd take out a red pen and, you know, like this sentence could be better. This word, what is it? Where are you going with this? Whatever. And she's like, what are you, what are you hoping to do with this? And I'm like, you know what, mom, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to do this. And it took about nine months to write, which is kind of ironic because uh, nine months is, you know, how long it takes to, uh, for a baby to um, be born. But um, I started to look around like, maybe I can get this published. Um, maybe somebody else. Here's the thing, Brad, like while I was writing this book, I was still convinced no one's going to read this. It's absolute garbage. And I'm the only one. I am the only one in this profession who's ever struggled. Clearly that is true. And so this is a waste of time. But if one person reads it and it helps them, then awesome. Um, and so, uh, start, you know, so ended up getting it published. And uh, when it came out, I started to like look into how to market the book. That's when I started learning about all the suicides and all of the post-traumatic stress and stuff that we that this profession struggles with. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, now I see. Oh, my gosh. I'm not the only one. So, um yeah, it started to do really well. I mean, it's not like, you know, Oprah Winfrey's um, next New York Times bestseller, but I've sold thousands and thousands of copies. Um, and no, I'm not like super rich, but um, it, because uh, I have three kids, but it is, uh, it has done so well. And so many uh, like police officers, firefighters and stuff have come up to me behind the scenes usually and said like, this is me. You just wrote the story of my life. Um, like I get it. Thank you. Like, thank you. Because I thought I was, I was the only one. Wait a minute. I'm the only one. No, no, I'm the only one. And so, uh, I think it started to really help with this battle that we're all fighting right now against the stigma, um, of like that, uh, we're weak if we get help and, you know, like we're the only ones that feel this way and it's crap. So, um, the, the book is, is very powerful. Um, and I definitely wrote it to be engaging, to, to be funny and not all heavy. Cause there is some heavy stuff in it. Um, but you know, I, I think one guy actually told me that he really appreciated that I wrote about all the different cars in the book, like all the different cars that were in my life at the time. Cause a lot of people can relate to that, right? Like what was your first car, Brad? Well, it was a 78. 78- Toyota long bed diesel pickup. That's cool. <laughs> Stick shift. That's even cooler. <laughs> okay. Now that top, top, top end speed, 78 miles an hour. My dad did that on purpose. This is what you're buying. <laughs> 78. So that would have been a really small one. It was small. It was not very big. Yeah, it was, it was small, but it would go on two wheels. I did that. I made sure that was, didn't do it on purpose, but I did make it happen. 
<laughs> but no, I, there's a, there's so much of this book that resonates. Uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm on that list. There's so much of this book resonates with me, uh, and hits home, uh, even the monster piece, you know, but, but for time purposes, let, let's keep moving. So this book, how do we, how do we arrive to, uh, and, and the, the book's amazing. The movie's amazing. So I would encourage, of course, I'm a reader. I would encourage reading the book. The book's always uh, just as good or uh, sometimes even more detailed than the movie. But how do we get to the movie? How does the, how does the movie show up? Is this is this a brainstorm uh, of you or somebody call you and say, I think this is this is an idea? Well, so I, one of the things that I was trying to do to get it um, to reach more people was to uh, put on Audible. And so... Uh, I have a, we have a family friend that, um, that has been in radio for 30 years and he does a lot of voiceovers and, and stuff like that. And he narrates audiobooks. Uh, his name is Will Stoff. And so Will, uh, did my audiobook for me. And yes, I paid him. It wasn't free, but he, <laughs> he was a lot cheaper back then. Now he's really expensive. Um, but, uh, he did my audiobook and, uh, he was kind of following along to see how it was doing. And when it hit like bestseller on Amazon and all these different categories, he's like, eh, that's pretty cool. And he's, he said, you know, um, this would make a, a good movie. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. Um, not really sure what to do with that, but you know, thank you. Uh, and, and a lot of people were saying that, that it would make a good film. And so I'm like, okay, so what do I just like call up Brad Pitt? Like, how does that work? Um, so, I, I started to pursue it a little bit on my own. And like, I even um, reached out to, I bought a ticket to a Comic-Con and I went and met David A.R. White. And then you're like, who the heck is David A.R. White? David A.R. White is the co-founder of Pure Flix. And he also um, has several faith-based films like God's Not Dead, like stuff like that. So um, he's uh, kind of famous in the faith-based film world. Um, but I uh, gave him a copy of my book, you know, after buying a ticket to meet him and took a picture with him. And I was like, yeah, this is going to happen. And I never heard from the guy. Imagine that. So uh, then I even I emailed Sony Affirm Films. Sony Affirm Films um, did Heaven is for Real. Uh, Sony Affirm Films did Soul Surfer and some other fairly well-known kind of faith-based films. And I actually get a response, and they're like, ah, it sounds great. Like, congratulations on your book, blah, blah, blah. But we don't make movies. If you want to make a movie, we'll buy it from you, maybe. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to do that, so I'm done. So honestly, like, uh, Stacy and I started to pray that if God wanted to make it into a movie and do use it in that, in that way, uh, then he was going to have to do it because we didn't know what to do. So uh, a couple months later, Will Stoff same guy, audiobook narrator, uh, calls me up and he's like, um, hey, I'm going to be in a film and this film company, they do some faith-based stuff. Uh, some of the connections seems like they're there. Why don't you overnight me a copy of the book? I'll give it to the film company owner, owner and we'll see what happens. And that's kind of what kicked that off. It is a absolutely fabulous film. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I've probably watched it two or three different times. I just think it's such a great, and there's so much about it that resonates uh, to a personal level, not just for me, but, you know, working in this wellness industry for a number of years, you hear, you know, not every nuance of that film I identify with, but you, it resonates on stories that I hear over there or over here, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the marriage and the difficulties and, uh, you know, even IA, you know, there's so much of this film that is so good. 
uh, to people who are really having a hard time. Uh, but I, you know, I just, I want to thank you for uh, offering up and being so transparent and being led by God uh, spiritually to, to write a book, because I think it's been uh, enormously impactful to so many people. If, if people want to find the movie or the book or Jonathan Hickory, give us a little bit of, I mean, where do we find, where do we find information? How do we connect? Uh, if they want to bring you in as a motivational speaker, inspirational speaker, uh, tell us a little bit how, how do they do that? Just kind of, if we wrap this up a little bit, how do they find Jonathan Hickory? Uh, it's really easy. So I, um, you can find me on Facebook, um, uh, but you can also find me on Instagram or whatever. But the easiest way is to just go to breakeverychainmovie.com. It's all one word. Uh, if you Google Break Every Chain Movie, that website will come up, breakeverychainmovie.com. Or, and there's like email links on there, or you can email me directly at breakeverychainmovie, all one word, at gmail.com. So that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, uh, certainly not a big shot. I'm out there to help people. And, you know, I'm just so thankful that, that this book and this movie is helping people because that's what it's all about. It's about glorifying God. And it's about saving lives. No, I, I, it, your humility certainly rings through because the, I'm sitting here on the website and I've, I see 15 different award uh, announcements on the website. Uh, best inspirational film, uh, winner, best film, best informational, uh, just on and on and on. De- best debut. I mean, such you're you're being pretty humble because this is this is a great movie thank you uh so to all of our listeners i would encourage you to jump on there uh check it out you can find it on uh prime video i know i just looked it up on mine i have prime video oh yeah Uh, i just looked it up uh, earlier today still still on there i've encouraged people countless people actually uh to go watch the movie because it actually uh is a is a you know oftentimes people like us like to hide uh, you know, they don't, it's that stigma piece. They don't know where to connect and say, Hey, watch this movie. See if you identify with it. If you do give me a call, you know, it's just a great platform to have a conversation while not having a conversation. Yeah. So yeah. Jonathan Hickory, thank you so much for coming on the no one fights alone podcast. We really appreciate you being here and really appreciate the book and the movie. So thank you so much. My honor, my pleasure. Bless you guys. Thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate you, man. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, 
and All Scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.